Thank you for listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. It is not intended nor should it be considered an invitation or inducement to buy or sell any of the underlying instruments cited, including but not limited to crypto assets, financial instruments, or any instruments that reference any index provided by CF Benchmarks Limited. This recording is not intended to persuade or incite you to buy or sell a security or securities noted within. Any commentary, interviews, and discussions are opinions only and should not be considered a personalized recommendation. Please contact your financial advisor or professional before making any investment decision. Some of the underlying instruments cited within this recording may be restricted to certain customer categories in certain jurisdictions. You're listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets, the home of informed conversation about crypto for institutions building the future of finance, presented by CF Benchmarks. I'm Ken O'Delaga, Head of Content, and I'm joined by Gabe Selby, our Lead Research Analyst. Okay, welcome to another episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets. As usual, I'm joined by my colleague in New York, Gabe. And also, because we do like to use our platform as one of the first and leading regulated benchmark administrators to basically promote good practice and, you know, have an education program for interested parties, we are continuing our sort of efforts to bring to you uh, guests on the show, some of the most distinguished and accomplished influential guests. And uh, the guest that we have today is, um, you know, in terms of accomplishments, you can't get much more accomplished. His name is uh, Mr. Jeff Yu. He's the CEO and founder of Monochrome uh, Asset Management, a crypto or digital asset first asset management firm in Australia. Jeff, we are so stoked to have you on board and uh, welcome. Thanks for having me. So uh, Jeff's background, just very briefly, is um, he was a founder of a firm that was uh, eventually became Binance AU or Binance Australia, a part of the um, well-known global crypto trading firm. And uh, that was in 2017. Uh, and in 2021, Jeff decided to uh, launch Monochrome Asset Management, uh, the asset management firm that is the, one of the leading crypto asset management firms in Australia. So Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about the sort of journey to launching Monochrome? Yeah, so we launched Monochrome based on a, on a very lead, it's neat in the, in the market that we've noticed when I was uh, running Binance Australia as the CEO. So there is a shift when it comes to institutional interests, particularly in the US. We've seen a lot of rise of, you know, big companies, illicit companies that have interest in a, you know, a Bitcoin Bitcoin treasury strategy, true micro strategy, for example. And we also started to see and you know the, the groundworks that big finance firms and asset managers like BlackRock, um, you know, Fidelity, State Street. Bank of New York, you know, people like that around the world that are very respected in the traditional finance space are starting to enter the market. But in Australia, there isn't really a solution that's particularly accessible for that type of investment to come in. But also, you know, to elevate the standard of service when it comes to crypto asset products to Australia, because Australia historically has been popular for the sort of the, the operators that are popular are unregulated exchanges and brokerages, which cause Issues with you know non-transparent market issues with things like which potentially become like FTX. Um, you know, if, if the exchange goes down, the assets are not protected because they are not segregated and not regulated. So a lot of this stuff are preventing the you know what we see as the next wave of adoption for crypto assets. 
So I set out the mission to create the most regulated, the most safest, the most risk-managed way for investors from retail to install alike to access you know, the asset class called crypto assets, which includes Bitcoin. So today, Monochrome operates uh, Australia's only Bitcoin trust, or in fact, any crypto asset investment product that is authorized by the new crypto asset licensing category that was created by you know, the top financial regulator in Australia, ASIC. Winding back a little bit, the chief motivation to found Monochrome was because you wanted to uh, utilize a regulated platform to bring regulated products to basically the public institutions and so on and so forth to further adoption. Um, I, th- I think that's what you're saying, right? Yeah, I guess I guess so because you know you have to have the robust uh, marketplaces for and regulated marketplaces for you know the next level of investors to come into the market because you know your average in-store client or your average family offices they have you know they have you know they have certain uh, some some family offices operate in a more liberal way but there are, there are family offices and fiduciaries that are very reluctant of accessing or can't access. Uh, crypto assets if they are offered through unregulated platforms. That is a problem. So Monochrome is here to fix that. And also we, we do it in a way that helps educate the market as well, because for example, we have a research division that helps educate fiduciaries and they're all accredited. So they can actually earn CBD points by looking and reading, doing quizzes on the research uh, segment on the, on the website. So these are the few things that we do to make sure that we not just elevate, don't just elevate the standards of service of the market to you know accept a in a new wave of investment to, to the asset, but also also sort of change that image of what people historically think about crypto assets. Because most people still think that, oh, it's part of the Wild West. It's not something that is for them. But as we've seen with a lot of these traditional players starting to support and you know engage with the asset class, and it is time for you know the asset class to unshackle themselves from its, you know, the the little bit of the Wild West past, like any emerging technologies like the internet and things like that have you know, historically been uh, progressed. Sure. Well, I, I want to get on to, obviously, talking about Monochrome Bitcoin Trust um, in a you know great detail in, in a while. But before we get there, let's talk about, because obviously Monochrome has had a relationship with um, CF Benchmarks pretty much since your own, your inception, right? So um, because you're, the main product that you are offering at the moment is a Bitcoin-related product. It of it's obvious that you are utilizing the CME CF Bitcoin reference rate, the most liquid um, regulated Bitcoin price available. Now, tell us what your journey was, or tell us what your thought process was um, in landing on the BRR, which is the initial for it, um, as the reference index, the NAV price index for uh, your funds. Yeah, so we we went through a very strict and you know. You know, standard in, in traditional financial financial services, uh, you know, framework is that you gotta do a, a long list of, you know, risk managed consideration of selecting your uh, uh, service providers and benchmarking is definitely one of the important ones when it comes to a passive Bitcoin tracker product like a Bitcoin fund. So that that is something that we would been running for a while now, like I said from the very beginning. And CF benchmark, uh, you know, running the CME CF Bitcoin reference rate is very different from the product sort of offering perspective from the other indices out there because of its large liquidity complex. So we've run a lot of research when it comes to selecting those uh, benchmark providers and CF benchmark came out as a top, you know, for, for example, it's a, you know, the market participants in the ecosystem that, you know, you guys have selected revolves around a lot of the institutional products and partners. 
for example, the CME, the Chicago, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, uh, where there's Bitcoin futures and micro futures settle price, settlement price and things like that. And also the, the, the 4 p.m. London strike price of the BRR as well. So that, that, that you know, and many other factors led us to uh, working with the best, because you know, it, it, we have to, if we want to do something, we have to do it in the best uh, possible way to offer uh, not just the, the safest and the most regulated product to the market, but also to demonstrate to the market that you know this asset class is very prime for you know institutional involvement and disruption. Yeah. Before we dig down a little bit into regulation, I think Gabe has some questions um, or some points to make about the uh, your use of the BRR and um, uh, some sort of like utilities that arise from that that are pretty unique that you would not necessarily get if you had um, opted for an alternative index. So Gabe. No, what Jeff was saying is correct. The BRR index, its relationship and its liquidity complex and how it's it's fit into this whole wider piece, this ecosystem of a marketplace um, by being associated with, you know, a premier derivatives exchange like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the CME group, it really kind of uh, unlocks, you know, a lot of potential for uh, all sorts of different types of investors. And, you know, what Jeff's saying here is that, you know, if you look at a marketplace, you have all, all sorts of different types of uh, investors with different types of goals. You have some investors who are maybe just trying to hedge, you know, or manage risk of a position. Um, you have certain types of investors that are trying to speculate and try and, you know, um, add risk. And then you have, you know, more of these uh, strategic type of investors who want to take advantage of that whole liquidity complex and have maintained a consistent exposure to a certain asset class. And you know, if you think about these three as a triangle, this, the CME group with the BRR index, and then you have traditional asset managers, you know, who are using, or not traditional asset managers in a sense that, you know, you have monochrome, who I would say is more on the vanguard of a digital asset manager, but these are, you know, would fall into more of a institutional type framework that are strategically trying to gain exposure to the asset class, providing liquidity through this, this reference rate pricing that's also tied to speculators who are trying to, you know, add or reduce risk and hedgers who are trying to manage risk in, in their positions as well. So it's about, I think, this this entire kind of ecosystem, you know, coming together um, in the BRR liquidity complex is what we like to say. And that's really something that, you know, makes, I think, the CFB unique and tries to really kind of facilitate this unique aspect for clients like Monochrome. Let's talk about some technical specifications um, here because we're talking about your uh, monochrome's uh, intention, ambition to make sure this is the best possible, best in class product available uh, for the current uh, landscape in Australia right now. So one of the stipulations, because there are genuine specific stipulations coming from the ASICs uh, guidelines and rules for crypto related products in Australia. And one of them, I believe, is the IOSCO. It's like an umbrella body for securities, for global securities regulation. They basically lay down some guidelines and some standards which indices and other sort of financial products need to meet in order to get a sort of rating, a kite mark. Um, now, obviously, the BRR has actually received that kite mark. And one of the reasons that um, you actually chose the BRR is because it met the standards that um, the ASIC uh, and the sort of crypto-related um, unit within ASIC 
laid down as um, a standard that needed to be met in order for an index to be utilized by a regulated product provider. Is that not the case? Yeah, pretty much. Um, so ASIC, which Ken has pointed out, is uh, the top financial regulator. It stands for the Australian Securities and Investment Commission. So they are kind of playing the role equivalent, if you say, with the US. They are kind of the combination of the SEC and CFTT. So they are very powerful. So ASIC came out with, in June of 2021, um, you know, a consultation paper called CP343. So and and a monochrome participant in that I think CF Benchmark did as well. So and a few other industry players, traditional and also the digital side as well. So that sort of led into uh, what was subsequently released called Report Seven Zero Five, and also an update on Info Two Two Five, which involved you know all the stuff with the businesses and you know with exchanges and things like that with crypto assets, and also Info Two Three Zero, I think, for exchange traded product uh, when it comes to having crypto assets. But what is what is you know, all those numbers aside, just for so that the listeners would have uh, a reference to Google it later to get getting more details. But what what the consultation paper and also the subsequent release was of um, Bot 705 was uh, introducing a new licensing category. And that's like, it's actually very monumental, very historic in Australia that um, ASIC did move on to issue a new license category called crypto assets. And uh, it looks at the issuers and op- op- the operators suitability to handle the asset class which is a very big factor and very important factor because crypto assets like we know are specialist asset class and you need that knowledge and the operational experience to actually run it safely um, because the, the recourse is very limited from a decentralized asset versus something more centralized like securities so and what are the, a few other things that ASIC did laid out other than custody insurance and one big thing is actually the benchmark so um, IOSCO principles of financial benchmark is named as one of the recommended um, to set a satisfy this new product sort of um, issuance. Um, and also, you know, it, it is it is a very widely regarded and understood um, benchmark standard as well globally. So basically what ASIC is trying to prevent is um, operators or issuers to rely, for example, on a bad benchmark, uh, which you know, might be comprised of a single or very limited or very poorly selected crypto asset spot markets. That will mean that there is no robust and transparent pricing structures, which leads to, say, the NAV not being actually marking to the price of Bitcoin. Because ultimately, a Bitcoin fund or a Bitcoin ETF, anything that tracks the price of Bitcoin, if its job is not fulfilled, objectives or the fund is not fulfilled when it cannot track the price of Bitcoin. So um, like Ken said, our relationship started way before this thing happened. Basically, the reason why nobody actually went down this route other than monochrome is because before ASIC came out of the license category, in order to offer crypto funds, which is very common in Australia, it's widely offered under a uh, you know the in a f- traditional financial category, financial license, a financial product category, uh, but it, it's only available to wholesale clients or sophisticated investors only. And in that market, like we know, it's a caveat mTOR market. It's a bias beware market. So it's about disclosures and things like that. So um, we we seen products that are referencing you know a AUD Bitcoin benchmark on a single local crypto exchange and using that as their benchmark. And um, you know the the, the, the team uh, operation team look at that and it's like that is just not the right way we want to go down that path. So we started sort of scouring the market and we found CF Benchmark among you know other similar providers. But you know CF Benchmark uh, stood out 
uh, because of the reasons that we covered earlier. Wonderful. That's exactly what I wanted to get to, um, Jeff, because I wanted to build a picture, um, which I think we have done, of basically the ASIC looking at the market in 2020, late 2020, early 2021, deciding it wanted to go forward, uh, put Australia in the fast lane for uh, regulated uh, crypto products, listed or unlisted, and deciding what was the best practice. Opening consultations with both Monochrome and CF Benchmarks and other parties, providing input to that consultation, and then coming up with the rules um, or guidelines, which they subsequently published later in 2021. And then essentially Monochrome's product and plans are rising out of that. So as you can see, it should, should be obvious um, that Monochrome has basically been at the heart of the regulated option for uh, crypto assets in Australia right from the beginning of regulated uh, crypto products in Australia. So um, I think that's uh, we've illustrated that pretty well. With that done, I think now we should make, move on and talk about the main product that Monochrome offers, which is the Monochrome Bitcoin Trust. If you were to give me an elevator pitch about this, um, Jeff, what would you say? So the Monochrome Bitcoin Trust is a retail and sophisticated investor, both accessible Bitcoin trust. So it, it, it is a fund that tracks the price of Bitcoin, where it is a structure where investors would hold interest in the asset underlyingly. And one of the benefits of that is that not just it's offered under the new licensing category, which means that there's a lot of regulatory look through. In, in fact, the highest order of duty of care, you know, the countries has ever offered to the asset class. Um, you know, but also, you know, you know, in terms of accessing the product, um, you know, opposed to traditionally on unregulated platforms. So there is definitely appetite and market for a product like that. Although for the Monochrome Bitcoin Trust, um, you know, we, we name it IPTC, it's still very new. You know, it's a iteration of our, an improvement of our previous product, which was set up before a lot of these licensing rules was in place, uh, but effectively carried through the same spirit of making sure that it's all tier one service providers in place. So for example, CF Benchmark is, the index provider, um, State Street Australia is the fund administrator and also the cash custodian. Uh, Gemini Trust Co is the Bitcoin custodian, digital custodian, and also um, the application of the units is also through our share registry partner, Atomic. So it's a very properly set up environment for investor that wants that sort of full protection, and but also fiduciaries to be able to use those products as well, whereas previously you know they can't. And it's also no secret that we are building it to be an ETF, but there's no promises on that. And I've you know, put a big caveat there. My legal team reminded me of that today. It is it is designed to meet and exceed standards that ASIC has put out. Um, and we're the only one, only crypto type of investment product in Australia today that is offered under this new crypto asset authorization. And that, that, is, that has been a while now um, that in terms of that licensing uh, availability, but it's so hard for the market operators, traditional especially, to to get past that um, relevant digital experience to be able to secure a licensing revision. So you know, we we are very privileged to be you know the the one that that is able to carry that um, batch for now. But we do hope that more players in Australia would follow suit and come into that regulated position and achieve that status because it is the safest way for uh, investors and families and people, just average people to access the products 
um, when it comes to crypto assets. There's so many risks that people don't understand. So many things that can go wrong on an regular platform. We've seen it with you know, the Terra, Luna, FTX, Three Arrows Capital, and all this stuff should not have happened if there's proper regulatory oversight in place. So that's what Monochrome is trying to provide. Like prudent risk management is core, absolutely core to how Monochrome operates its business. And we're continuing to invest in that, those funds, despite you know, us already being in a regulated position. Sure, sure. You know, that speaks to, you know, essentially the persistence, the commitment, um, and basically the serious mindedness of this aspect of the space that you occupy. And that should be uh, coming through loud and clear to anyone who's observing closely. What I wanted to ask you, uh, Jeff, is um, now we talked about ASIC and the way that ASIC has paved the way for the growth of a regulated crypto asset industry in Australia. We've already seen some players taking advantage of that new space, those new guidelines. I think we've had a couple of listings. Um, we've also had a couple of delisting, if I'm remembering correctly. What went wrong there, do you think, if you don't mind me asking? So the, the story of that, you no, know, I would like definitely would like to sort of highlight here is that there's a difference between a actual license authorized uh, crypto asset license authorized uh, exchange traded product versus something that is using a more funds or funds manner to get around that requirement. So um, it is it is it is worth noting that there's so far no crypto ETFs being listed on the main stock change ASX in Australia. Um, the ones that you're referring to, Ken just referred to, they're on the so-called the, the other the smaller stock exchange in Australia called called Cebo Australia, or they used to be called ChiX. So um, you know, we 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 know it's it's a small industry. We know each other, things like that. We've been involved with conversations very early on on both exchanges, and obviously Monochrome is much very much more focused on the ASX at the moment. Um, but what sort of happened there was um, there is basically a guideline that has a that said that if the fund holds more than 5% of crypto asset financial products, it needs to come under this new licensing category. So, um, you know, there are some interpretations, whereas if you are holding a fund, where it's overseas or domestic, that happens to hold crypto assets underlyingly, but it's not offered to, so for example, it's a wholesale fund, the retail fund holds the interest in the wholesale fund, and it, it basically can technically get away with not being called a crypto product. So that's that's how some providers roughly get around that and jump the gun on a, uh, a sort of Bitcoin ETF listing. So like you did say that, yes, the response wasn't good. There are the listings and things like that that happened since, um, just because that it's a combination of just the market factors. I think most of them launched at a very poor timing, so not, not to the detriment of, of their of their sort of no one can predict the crypto markets like I said it's very volatile um, and they launched exactly right during the whole Luna Terra incident so plus the the fact that the product wasn't really very much clear about what they actually sit in when what regulatory look, look through they actually have and the protection the investors would subsequently you know to get would, would put a bit of a question mark when it comes to, you know, platforms and dealer groups to offer those products and actually use those products and recommend those products. So those are sort of combination of factors. And Monochrome, we obviously are very close to the action of this. Um, we, we were never intending to be the first. That, that's one other sort of surprise, surprise that we've 
with God. Not a surprise to us. Not a surprise to us at all. But yeah, I absolutely understand. Yeah. What people yeah. yeah. yeah they're much bigger names. They're much sort of more louder players that, that claims that they want to be the first and things like that. Uh, but, you know, if you look, if you look back into the media coverage, like Monaco Mesa, we stand firm off, like, you know, we should not rush this. We should not rush this product. We should sort of make sure that the priority is on the investor. You want to make sure that product that you get out to the market is the most you know, most regulated, most robust product at all. You, you can't have something, especially as the new US crypto assets, to be offered something like a quasi-regulated, quasi-look-around kind of solution. It has to be properly done. So, um, you know, like like my, uh, my mentors would say that, and especially in the tr traditional finance space, there's a lot of incidents where success can be traced back to people just consistently just standing firm of doing the right thing. And inversely, there's also things that can go bad and you kind of trace back and it's usually someone took a shortcut somewhere before and leads to that. So that is our, that is exactly sort of how we operate. We make sure that it's absolutely the most robust and best product ever. So I wanted to press that lever actually, Jeff, with respect to some of the prior attempts to get a listed crypto asset product um, going in Australia. When it's not necessarily that important. We just use that as a sort of reference. But the point, the main point for us here is that IBTC, the Monochrome Bitcoin Trust, has from its very, you know, foundations gone a different route, a more transparent route. Uh, it's not trying to use it as a, de a device or some sort of like a, maybe a loophole within the regulations to get to a listing or to get into existence even. Uh, rather, it is going the sort of direct route, the transparent route, and building on those foundations in hopes that uh, at some point in the future, as you've mentioned, it's not a secret that you would like at some point to have an ECF product, at some point in the future to actually have that listed product. I think that's correct, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So Jeff, you you talked a little bit about the regulatory environment and it sounds like, you know, Australia is taking, you know, a different approach than what we've seen here in the United States where I'm based and that, you know, they are taking these considerations that digital assets, cryptocurrencies have these unique kind of asset class characteristics such as decentralization and they're creating like a specialized category. And it's no secret, I think, you know, like you were saying, you mentioned earlier that that you want the trust, you know, eventually or you're trying to maybe look towards an ETF type uh, structure for, for that fund. Um, what has that process been like, you know, working with regulators? You know, what, what kind of hurdles have you seen or what yeah, what's the process been like for something like that? Because that's something that, you know, I think is very interesting and a lot of the listeners would like to just kind of learn a little bit about how other countries are doing it. Yeah, that's right. So I think it's worth um, sort of mentioning the good process, good stuff first before we go into the more challenging experience. So I think what was good is actually the process that we have to, that we've gone through with the regulated ASIC. So everything is very predictable. Everything is as per what industry standards and, and people's experience in getting license revised and the requisitions and things like that, um, they're all pretty, they're all, those are the predictable ones. So there's nothing that stood out of the norm. You know, we were expecting to get it within that six to nine month period of a license revision, you know, timeframe. We got it on August of last year, 2022. So in fact, you know, the, the sort of leads into the more challenging part is that, you know, obviously back then there was a lot more noise than what today when it comes to trying to get a, you know, retail crypto asset product out in the market where it's an ETF listed or unlisted um, fund, for example. So we were we were under the well, under the pressure a little bit, even though we, we we don't we don't want to sort of like 
be a part of that sort of you know that that sort of hype train um, because there's but you can't you can't bear from sort of looking at there's some people that have might have been you know seems like they've jumped the gun and went on in a more sort of um, non-licensed authorization route, not non-crypto asset license authorization authorization route, and they, they got even they even got listed before we got the license revision. And Monochrome was the first batch, if I'm not if I'm not if I'm not, if I'm not wrong, Monochrome was the first batch to actually apply for the license revision when when those facilities was available in December. So um, we we did we did had a conversation with um, certain ministers and certain um, officers that have been helping us, you know, in, in, in the regulators front on, on the application to seek clarification of like, is that the actual intention of, you know, letting those type of uh, products through before, you know, an actual probably licensed one is, is ready to go into the market. But the response was pretty much on that there are certain things that ASIC does have power. Uh, by the certain things that needs you know ministerial work to sort of enforce certain boundaries to prevent sidestepping to happen but we were taken by surprise uh, when the market actually did the job of filtering off um, products that are not up to standard so in a bittersweet bittersweet moment because it does also pain um, it makes our job a little bit difficult because then we got to explain to the market how monochrome is different Everyone in the market will tell you that they're regulated, that this and that, that, and that's our challenge in the market. And and these are not just unregulated players that claims to be regulated. We're talking about like people that are operating under you know a financial license, but are talking up their product, but you know they they are not offered under a crypto asset authorization, and it's a main problem. So so we we are we are tasked to sort of like re-engage the market to explain to people, hey, this is what we're doing. Um, and usually it comes back to like, how is it different? I mean, there is also a um, funny conversation I had with, the, with, the, with an advisor uh, the other day and, and he asked the question, so what is the difference between buying IBTC and buying crypto on an exchange? And and I was, I was um, and it's like deep down, I, I really want to give an answer. Leave, but, you know, I was, leaves, right? <laughs> yeah, I was taking back a leap, but it is it is a responsibility that we have to carry because we we are the pioneers in this market. Like I do, I do not have the heart to tell him that like you know what's the difference of going to a financial advisor versus going to a fortune teller, right? It's like it's like once once properly licensed, have the credentials to do it, and once totally unregulated. So that that sort of thing is something that we have to work as together as an industry, and that's why we're doing this kind of podcast together. I think it's very healthy to let people know what the actual regulatory uh, status is in Australia, and sort of how to look for uh, what to look for in terms of all these products out there that claim all claiming to be the best, all claiming to to be regulated, but. You know, with regulation, the beauty of it is that you don't have to trust the people marketing this product. You just have to trust the regulation. But, you know, you have to know where to look. That's that's a problem. Yeah, crucial, crucial points. Um, I wanted to ask you something specific about the IBTC. I mentioned in conversation, one of the previous conversations we had, the bare trust structure, because I think it's actually important because it, enable, it has a perspective on basically rights to the underlying asset itself. So if you can explain a little bit about that, that'd be brilliant. So the bear trust structure is different from a standard unit trust structure where in simple terms, a bear trust can be looked at as like every asset holding is pigeonholed. So Ken's asset or Ken's interest in the Bitcoin is, is here, Jeff's here, Gabe's here, and et cetera. So in a standard unit trust, everyone's pulled together. 
right? So the, the problem, the sort of reason why we sort of explored bear trust in the first place was actually um, two reasons. So one, one reason is more, more sort of philosophical and one, one reason is more practical. I'll touch on the practical reason first. The practical reason is actually on a tax um, issue that most Bitcoin funds would run into when it hits a certain number of investors. So in Australia, Bitcoin itself, it's not a financial product under the Corporations Act. And, and you know, it, I think you would never get to a status where the Corporation Act, Corporations Act will be revised. That's, that's going to be historic. It'll take a long time. So um, there are certain tax treatments that aren't very clear, and we just didn't want to take the risk of, you know, coming up with a product that has further down the line ambiguity when it comes to tax treatment, tax treatment, because it's very important, um, you know, in, in the market and the asset class that can that can go up and down very very sort of um, in a wide magnitudes. So we came out with a solution that effectively resolves that because a bear trust, like I said, it's a pigeonhole system. So when assets move in and out of the structure in specie, so you can Bitcoin in or Bitcoin out, um, theoretically, I mean, this at least I can't offer tax advice, but you know, per, per our assessment of that and our advice that we receive, um, you know, that wouldn't constitute a change of beneficial ownership, which you know gets around the problem of uh, effectively everybody has to trust past certain investors. If we're not doing this, it would run the risk potentially that the losses and gains would have to be socialized every time someone sells their position, which does not make sense if you're just holding long term. So the more philosophical reason that we set up uh, chose to chose to also do the bear trust, but it's also in coincidence is that like I personally believe that Bitcoin's sort of self custody aspect or a function is very important for people to learn eventually when they're comfortable. So um, we we do not want to make or build, even though it's against our own interests, um, a, a structure where people can leave if they want. Right. It's a it's not just a open ended in a way that you can redeem back to dollars or, or, or you know Australian dollars, but it's it's also gives people the ability to take and withdraw the Bitcoin out in specie. And you know, if they want to do self custody when accountable, or you know, sometimes we we've helped people that um, you know, these, these are examples where self custody is not for everybody, despite of how much I believe self custody is very important. Like we have we have instances where we guide clients that have to deal with a family situation or a period of time where they just cannot focus on doing self custody. They want something that actually protects them um, to the highest standard possible, um, excluding you know, the Wild West unregulated players and platforms. So um, these these are a few reasons why we, we we want to make it sort of the most flexible product and people are not locked in. Because the, the main difference is that if you want to take your Bitcoin out into self-custody in a traditional, you know, more of the US futures ETF or some of the Canadian Bitcoin ETFs, the only way you can do that is to sell your units, crystallize the tax sort of event, uh, and then go to an unregulated, potentially an unregulated player Expose yourself to risk to buy the Bitcoin and then take it out, and I, we we just think that we just think that you can avoid all the stuff by building it exactly how we do it, where the the ability to withdraw the Bitcoin species out, going directly to a you know a, a cold wallet that they can set up um, through and it's facilitated through um, our custodian um, partner, which is uh, Gemini Trust Co. Sure. The other aspect I think, and it's another slight irony here, is basically. As a retail orientated product, the stipulations and regulations are essentially higher. You know, inherent within the regulatory process is, you know, the desire to protect 
uh, the individual and retail uh, participants in markets, maybe more than the, you know, the alleged um, more better informed um, wholesale or institutional sort of participants. But of course, when you actually do that and you actually do fall under the regulations and you, you're compliant, you become a lot more attractive to the institutions as well. I think that's also another, another sort of lever you might be able to push um, going forward. Is that not the case? Yeah, so we have conversation in the market very broadly from you know from all levels of participants in the fin services industry, and all the common feedback is that it has to be a retail fund, um, prefer, preferably an ETF. So this is why sort of we're pursuing you know making sure that we are, we can have a product that t- totally addresses the need for the market. Like you said, um, a retail product is always um, you know always comes with a much much higher regulatory protection and look through because it is um you know the, the regulator views retail investments as needing more paternal oversight than sophisticated investors investing in their own ventures and you know, they're willing to take the risk so they can stomach the risk better. Um so like like I did mention before, um wholesale only products are you know run under a caveat mTOR system, the buyers beware market. Like theoretically you can you can agree on anything as long as both parties come into agreement and you're good to go. But in a retail environment, it, it, it's, not a, it's not a handshake deal with, the, with the, an investor. It is a process you've got to go through with the regulator, in this case with crypto assets, to acquire a license authorization. It goes through, it comes through a lot of different factors, but also on a product uh, development standpoint, you've got to demonstrate that this product fulfills all the provisions for you know, custody, all the provisions for insurance, has the proper channels for dispute resolutions. Basically, in, in sort of simpler words, if this thing's, if this retail fund go pear shape, you know, will investors get hurt? If the answer is yes, ASIC would likely not approve a product like that. And the answer always has to be no. So the IPTC product, you know, is structured that it, it is, it is, Technically, I'm not important in the equation because I shouldn't be. And these are the benefits of you know coming under uh, strict, robust regulation. And I think I think most people are starting to realize that Australia does have crypto regulation because it's a it's a misnomer that you see in the news where some unregulated players are are claiming that there is no regulation, but in in in, in fact, it's there's no regulation that they like, right? So it is very important to to actually spell to the market. How to actually view, and that's why I mentioned CP343, I mentioned Report 705, I mentioned Info 225, Info 230. These are all, you know, these are all available on ASIC's website and people can look at it today. And it's not something that is up for a couple of months. It's almost, you know, good good part of um, half a year, even longer that it's there. And people still uh, are question, uh, sort of in the question of whether surely have crypto regulation or not. The answer is yes, surely it does have crypto regulation. I mean, certainly this is brilliant. Um, all very indicative. Really, I think people should be able to take away from this conversation the very fact that IBTC exists. Prima facie in itself demonstrates its uh, market integrity, its worthiness as a, as, a, as a product. One other thing I wanted to mention as we begin to round this off, a lot of these things that we're talking about is very largely the pursuit of excellence in many, many ways. Obviously, the most reliable, the most accurate product, the best product in class. Also, of course, the safest product to address a market like Bitcoin. But one other aspect of that is about the NAV striking issue. And when we say NAV striking, just a really, really quick simplification. Net asset value, this is a process that is undertaken 
for funds of this nature typically once a day. And it's essentially a valuation process where you take the index price at the time of the NAV striking and you use that price to calculate a value of the holdings. The important thing here is that um, you can sort of strike that NAV at any time of the day, but you want to strike that NAV at a time of the day that is most representative of the most liquid trading in the market possible. Now, I understand that the NAV strike for the IBTC takes place at the London market close, which is uh, 4 p.m. London time, rather than the Australian market close. Um, and we've sort of both sort of jointly undertaken or participated in some research to uh, sort of show what the best time to do that is. And I think you chose the London time. Can you explain a little bit why that decision was made? Yeah, so to, to sort of cover that, we, we wrote a article called um, Time Zone Consideration for Benchmark um, for an Exchange Traded Product for Assurance Passive Spot Bitcoin ETP on our website. That essentially is, um, you know, a whole bunch of research that we did on why, you know, the, the 4 p.m. London strike is uh, the most sensible in from pricing transparency and also the, the, the risk, preventing the risk of manipulation and things like that. So um, we do execute. Um, it's very important to, to note that uh, because the Bitcoin market is very concentrated um, in the USD market, so in terms of volume and liquidity, it's all in USD. Um, the Australian Bitcoin market itself, you know, and the, there are a few unregulated exchanges that that you know, actually runs direct pairs, but that's not good enough for you know a robust product that that is close to meeting the regulator's expectation for an ETP. So we use WMR for AUD to USD, and we use the 4 p.m. BR at the same time for the USD to BTC, and we strike that and create a synthetic benchmark to AUD to BTC. So it is um. You know, some people that, that give us suggestions that well, technically you can execute the FX leg early in the day when the office you know, is still open uh, without if you're in a night shift team and you can execute the benchmark at 4 p.m. London, which is about, you know, somewhere past mid midnight in Australia. So we do have a night shift, night shift operations team that runs that. But one of the main reasons is that it's purer to do it all at once. And it's also one of the requirements, if not wrong, one of the requirements for an ETF that you cannot have benchmark, see that benchmark, they are strike at different times. It has to be the same same sort of exact instance. So definitely check out the uh, the blog that we put out on this one. Thank you, Ken, for putting a link to the blog for, for us. Thank you very much indeed for that conversation, Jeff. Highly educational. Lots of stuff for the listener to take away. Essentially, as we've stated, you know, the whole tone of the conversation, we've tried to lead you to the point to understand for yourself that basically this product, the IBTC, which is uh, strikes nav against um, the CMEC of Bitcoin reference rate, the most liquid Bitcoin price, institutional Bitcoin price, has basically gone through every step of the regulatory process, uh, right from the inception of the formalized regulatory process for listed crypto products in Australia. And the fact that it exists at all should be indicative of the idea that it has actually passed many of those um, stipulations and criteria. So um, we're really excited to see Monochrome out in the market as essentially the first product of its kind. And of course, uh, that it uses the BRR. And we're excited to see where the product might go next and where Monochrome might go in the future. Regardless of, uh, you know, ups and downs, the crypto asset industry is pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, it's great to actually be a part of a firm like Monochrome out there in Australia. 
to participate in that future. So all I can say more than that is uh, thanks a lot for joining us, Jeff. It's been really, really educational, as I say. Uh, we hope that you come back on at some stage in the future. I've been Ken and we've been joined by Gabe in New York and of course our guest Jeff. We'll see you again for the next episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets. Thank you.